I want to speak to you from the heart today. I want to share with you heart to heart about what is most important to me. And maybe it's the same thing that's most important to you. I want to talk with you today about love. Not what passes for love, but real love, fundamental love, radical love, the real thing, not the counterfeits of love that you and I have pursued in our lives in one way or another, those fake loves that we've mistaken for real love or those lesser loves that we've tried to elevate or inflate into more than they could possibly be. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about authentic love. And I think love is not only the most essential experience we can have in the whole world, it's also the most confusing for us. Think about it. What else has confused you more than love? What has been more enduringly puzzling in your life than love? What has been more elusive for you in your experience than love? What's been more enigmatic than love in your life? What have you struggled with more than love? Love. The very word is evocative. The very word love is provocative. It stirs us up inside. Your parts react in so many different ways to the word love. And that is where we are going today. We're going deep into the mystery of love. Maybe you are feeling like you're just struggling to survive. I want more for you than that. Or maybe much of the time you feel like things are okay. Maybe they're pretty good. Well, I want more for you than that. I want to share with you the very best of what I have. The very best of what I have on this central focus. This such an important focus on well-being from a Catholic perspective. Now let's review a little. In episode 88 of this podcast, we began a series on trauma with that piece called Trauma, Defining and Understanding the Experience. That one was a huge hit. That episode had so many people interested in it. It has by far the most downloads of any of the episodes. That was Trauma, Defining and Understanding Your Experience, episode 88. We introduced this new series on trauma. Then in episode 89, the next one, that one was called Your Trauma, Your Body protection versus connection. And in that episode, we did a deep dive into the effects of trauma on the body, right? What trauma does to your body, really understanding trauma from the perspective of polyvagal theory by Stephen Porges and interpreted by Deb Dana. But then I really wanted to get into looking at well-being. How does secular psychology, how do secular approaches understand well-being? Because if you want to understand the impact of trauma, you've got to understand what well-being is, what it looks like, how it feels inside in our bones when we're doing well. 
So many people, I'm going to emphasize this, so many people have never really experienced well-being over time. It's possible that you've never really experienced a sense of well-being that's enduring, that has lasted. And so I started a sub-series on well-being within this broader trauma series. So that's where episodes 90 and 92 of this podcast came in. That's where we really dived into the best of current psychological theorizing what secular approaches say about well-being. Episode 90 was titled Your Well-Being, The Secular Experts Speak. We covered the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which really doesn't have a description of well-being. We described well-being from the perspective of the Psychodynamic Diagnostic Manual. We talked about hedonic well-being, eudaimonic well-being, Freud's ideas of well-being. We talked about the contributions of Martin Seligman in positive psychology. We also talked about polyvagal theory again with Stephen Porges and Deb Dana, their thoughts about well-being, and we discussed internal family systems approaches and what internal family systems has to say about well-being. In episode 92, we discussed interpersonal neurobiology. This is Daniel Siegel's approach, which has a lot to say about what a healthy mind is. A lot of descriptions about well-being. It's very well developed. Then in episode 93, that consisted of three experiential exercises. The first experiential exercise was all about the ways in which you reject yourself or, or in ways in which you condemn yourself as a person. The second was on protection versus connection, right? Your initial reactions to your wounds. And that one was based off of polyvagal theory. And the third experiential exercise in episode 93 was a focus on your inner chaos and your rigidity within. This was based off of Daniel Siegel's interpersonal neurobiology. And the point that he makes that all psychological symptoms can be thought of in terms of rigidity and slash or chaos, rigidity and chaos, rigidity and chaos are signs of having lost a sense of well-being in IPNB. I really invite you to check those experiential exercises out in episode 93 if you haven't already. There's lots of opportunities in those experiential exercises to do your inner work. So that's the review. As you know, I am Dr. Peter Malinowski, clinical psychologist, passionate Catholic, and I am the voice of this podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics. In this podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics, we take on the most important psychological questions. We take on the most important human formation issues. We take those issues head on directly without mincing words, without trepidation, without vacillation, without hesitation. We are dealing with the most important concerns in the natural realm, the absolutely central issues that we need to address with all of our energy and with all of our resources. And up until now, I've said over and over again, the most important episodes that I've done in Interior Integration for Catholics were episodes 37 to 49. That was the 13-episode series I did on shame. Why? Because shame is the major driver of so much emotional distress, so many identity issues, so many psychological symptoms. Shame. But that's about to change. Because in these next few episodes, starting with this episode, these next few episodes focus on well-being from a Catholic perspective. Informed first 
by the perennial wisdom of the Catholic Church, and then secondarily by the best of psychological science, theory, research, and practice. These episodes are going to be on love, and these will be the most important episodes in this podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics. Why? Because of two words, two words, love heals. Love heals. Love restores you. Love makes new. And love is our mission. Love is your mission. Love is my mission. Love is our goal. Love is the destiny to which we are called. This is episode 94 of the Interior Integration for Catholics podcast. It's released on June 6th, 2022, and it's titled The Primacy of Love. Love as the center of our being. We were made in love and for love and to love. And you see this in the prayer to our Lord in the litanies of the heart. In those litanies, we pray, Lord Jesus, you created me in love for love. Bring me to a place of vulnerability within the safety of your loving arms. I discussed these litanies of the heart with Dr. Jerry Crete at length in episode 91 of this podcast. That was a special episode all about the litanies of the heart, which were released by Souls and Hearts. Souls and Hearts is the broader organization. Souls and Hearts is all about providing the best of psychological and human formation resources grounded firmly in a Catholic understanding of the human person and making that available to the world on our website, soulsandhearts.com. I want to invite you on this adventure of loving. As I said before, so many people are merely surviving. Their vision is so reduced. They're not even looking to be loved or to love. Maybe that's you to some degree, right? But so many people are not on this adventure of love. They are jaded. They're disillusioned. They're tired. They're wounded by betrayal or abandonment. They're cautious. They're skeptical. They're calculating when it comes to love. They hear the word love and it activates shame and grief and loss and sorrow and fear, maybe guilt in parts of them. Parts of them don't want the vulnerability. Parts of them don't want the risk of being hurt again. Maybe that's you too. Hmm? Maybe that's you too. So many are not on this adventure with us. I want you to come on this adventure, this greatest adventure, this adventure of loving. Stay with me in this podcast episode. This can be a fresh start for you if you need one. A new start on the adventure of loving. Let's hear from St. Augustine, St. Augustine of Hippo, doctor of the church. He says this, quote, To fall in love with God is the greatest romance. To seek him is the greatest adventure. To find him, the greatest human achievement. End quote. And St. Teresa of Lisieux, she says, quote, 
I know of no other means to reach perfection than by love. To love, how perfectly our hearts are made for this. Sometimes I look for another word to use, but in this land of exile, no other word so well expresses the vibrations of our soul. Hence, we must keep to that one word, love. End quote. Our great mission as Catholics, the great mission for you and me, is summed up in the two great commandments. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 31. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them all well, asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of them all? And Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all of it, all your soul. All of it with all your mind, all of it and with all your strength, all of it, all of you. And to love your neighbor as yourself. Loving with our whole heart. The Jesuit Jules Toner in his 1968 book, The Experience of Love, describes it this way. Quote, In the full, concrete experience of love, our whole being, spirit and flesh is involved. Cognitive acts, feelings and affections, freedom, bodily reactions, all these are influencing each other and all are continually fluctuating in such a way as to change the structure and the intensity of the experience. End quote. Our whole experience, body, soul, mind, strength, heart, all of it. And you know what? Love is the distinguishing characteristic of Christians. John 13, 35, our Lord says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Love is the absolute central command. It's the absolute central mission. It is our focus. It is our star that we follow in Catholicism. Let's go back to the Baltimore Catechism. First lesson on the end of man. Question number six. Question, why did God make you? God made me to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this world, and to be happy with him forever in heaven. God made me to know him, to love him, and to serve him. And to love God implies both that we know him and that we serve him. And not the other way around. Just because we know somebody doesn't mean we love them. Just because we serve somebody doesn't mean we love them. But if we love God, we're going to know him and we're going to serve him. Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2392. Quote, love is the fundamental and innate vocation of every human being. End quote. 
And that actually is a quote from St. John Paul II's Familiaris Consortio, paragraph 11. Love is the fundamental and innate vocation of every human being. Paragraph 2134, the first commandment summons man to believe in God, to hope in him, and to love him above all else. St. Teresa of Lisieux, quote, it is love alone that counts, end quote. So I hope I've, I've convinced you that love is the absolute central thing that we're focusing on. It's not about following a certain set of rules. It's not about building up this virtue or that virtue. It is about entering into a deep, intimate, personal relationship with our Lord. It is about finding our identity as sons and daughters of God in the love relationship. So when we look at Catholic well-being, it is not about hedonism. It's not about feeling good all the time. It is about being equipped to live out our mission of being loved and of loving God, our neighbors, including our enemies and ourselves. So many secular approaches to well-being focus on the pursuit of happiness. They operate off of a hedonistic anthropology. And Carrie Snow is a stand-up comedian who was raised in a Jewish family, and she has this great quote. She says, quote, The pursuit of happiness is a most ridiculous phrase. If you pursue happiness, you'll never find it. End quote. Mick Cady, in his 2019 blog, talked about Augustine of Hippo, and he referred to how Augustine, St. Augustine, read a dialogue by the Roman philosopher Cicero, in which Cicero stated that every person sets out to be happy, but the majority are thoroughly wretched, right? No one dreams of growing up to be middle-aged and overweight and divorced and unhappy in the job with, you know, contention with the family, problems with the children. Nobody plans that to be the way we're going to be. Nobody plans to be miserable. Everybody pursues happiness, right? This is, this is sort of a standard thing, right? We're all after that, right? Why does it work out that way? Why if so many people are pursuing happiness, why are so many miserable? And Augustine was convinced that what defines a person more than anything else, if you really want to know who a person is, look at what they love. Look at what they love. Don't ask what they believe. Don't ask what they hope for. Don't ask what they possess. Don't ask you know, all these other questions. Look at what they love. Look at what they give themselves to. We can't go with these secular approaches. We can't go with this pursuit of happiness nonsense. We need an anthropology. We need a revealed religion to guide us on this or we will never get it. Psychology alone cannot answer the deep questions about what we should love and what love is ordered and what love is disordered. There are as many psychologies as there are anthropologies that undergird and support them. Psychology cannot answer the questions that are properly in the realm of theology, philosophy, epistemology, and metaphysics. That is why we need to get those things right 
Because if we don't, any psychology that's based on a flawed anthropology is going to be misdirected. This is where that quote by G.K. Chesterton in his critical study of Charles Dickens was so great. G.K. Chesterton said, quote, We do not really want a religion that is right where we are right. What we want is a religion that is right where we are wrong. We do not want, as the newspapers say, a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. End quote. We need help. We need divine revelation. It's not going to be immediately obvious to our unaided natural vision what's going to actually bring us peace and joy, what's going to bring us fulfillment in our human condition. So that's why this podcast, that's why Souls and Hearts is grounded on a Catholic understanding of the human person. Now let's get into some definitions of love, right? The first thing I'm going to say is that English is a really difficult language when it comes to describing inner experience. When it comes to describing one's phenomenological experience, what's going on inside, English is a very limited language. When I was in college, I had a friend named Jose. And Jose was Spanish. He was from Spain. And he said to me one day, he said, Peter, he said, let's talk about languages. Let's talk about the different languages. Let's talk about German. German, he said, is the language of the philosophers. It's the language of thought. It's the language of deep ideas. He said, now, French. French is the language of love. French is the language of lovers. It's the language where we communicate the intensity of the relationality. And he said, Spanish. Now, Spanish. Spanish is the language of prayer. Spanish is the language in which we commune with the divine. And English, Peter, English is the language uniquely suited to communicate with animals. I've always remembered that, right? Now, some of this had to do with some Spanish nationalism on the part of Jose, but English is a really limited, you know, really has a limited vocabulary when we come to talk with love, which is why we tend to go back to the Greek, right? There are eight different types of love in the Greek. Um, and so we often will call them by their Greek names because we don't have good equivalents. We just have, just have the one word in English, a word that gets abused, a, a word that gets misused, a, a, a word that's overly defined. But if we go back to what St. Therese of Lisieux, doctor of the church, said, Sometimes I look for another word to use, but in this land of exile, no other word so well expresses the vibrations of our soul. Hence, we must keep to that one word, love. And I've thought about using other words. I've thought about using charity, but that just always reminds me of a guy in a Santa suit ringing a bell outside the mall. Or we could get into some, you know, Latin words like caritas, you know, and so forth. But 
I'm going to continue to use the word love, but let's just run through the different types of love according to the Greeks, right? So many of you will know some of these. Eros, right? The romantic, the passionate love, right? Named after the Greek god of fertility. That's the passionate, sensual, that's the romantic love. It's got these intense sexual feelings, intense romantic feelings. Eros, right? Philia, that's the affectionate love, the love among friends, the love between friends, the friendship, some will call this platonic love, doesn't have the physical attraction of eros. Storge. Storge, that's the affection that family members share, the bonds of kinship, right? This is the love between parents and their children, between children and their parents. And it can also describe a sense of patriotism, the love that one might have toward their country, or maybe the allegiance or the the bond that one has to their sports team, Storge. All right, mania, right? This is more of an obsessive love. When we get all sort of obsessed, when we start stalking, when there's all this jealousy, when there's this sort of possessiveness, right? That is mania according to the Greeks. Ludus, right? This is the playful love. This is when you have this lightheartedness, this childlike freedom, this playfulness. Could be a situation of having a crush. Could be the kind of affection between young lovers. It can have a little taste of Eros in it too. Pragma, right? This is a different kind of love. This is enduring committed love. This is the love that's aged, that's matured, that's gone through hard times, that's been tested by trials, that shows patience, that involves tolerance, where two people have stuck it out together. Pragma. Philautia. This is the self-love. The Greeks were aware that in order to love another, we do have to love ourselves. It's attributed to Aristotle that he said, quote, all friendly feelings for others are an extension of a man's feelings for himself, right? So this is the idea of self-love. And we're going to talk a lot about ordered self-love in future episodes, but I want to mention it here, philautia. And then agape. This is one that you've probably heard of the selfless universal love, right? This is this includes the love for God. This includes love for others. This is that unconditional love. It's a love that goes way beyond ourselves. There's this compassion, this empathy that extends and, the, and to people that we may not know very well. This is that selfless love. Agape, is what we're focusing on in these podcast episodes. Bernard Brady, in his 2003 book called Christian Love, How Christians Through the Ages Have Understood Love, he asserts that agape does not neglect, deny, or destroy eros or indeed philia. It informs them. Right. So this idea is that agape can inform all of these loves. Well, maybe not mania, but all of the other loves. And Jules Toner, the phenomenologist, the Jesuit, 
really worked on developing what he called radical love. Now, that's got a different meaning now, 50 years after he wrote his original book. People think, well, it's radical and it's extreme, right? It's unusual, it's unconventional. But he was using it in a technical sense, right? Radical coming from the Latin word radix, radix or root. He was looking for the love that is foundational to all other loves, a love that informs all other loves. And Toner describes how this radical love is a response to the beloved's total reality. We're going to get into some of this in a little bit more detail. In this way of discussing love, though, you'll notice that I'm using an interdisciplinary approach. It's not just theology. It's not just philosophy. When you just stick to philosophy and theology, philosophers and theologians generally don't understand the impact of trauma on being loved and loving. There's certain things that they just don't get. Even the Divine Mercy University's Catholic Christian Metamodel of the Person says almost nothing about trauma and its impact. There's nothing in the index on trauma And that is a pretty significant omission. It's a glaring omission, actually. We need, as psychologists, we need as human beings to be able to understand the impact of trauma on our capacity to be loved and to love. And so that's why we're discussing love here. We're going to discuss how trauma, how different experiences of trauma compromise our ability to love. Because when it compromises our ability to love, it compromises our well-being. We're going to bring in phenomenologists. Phenomenology is an approach that concentrates on the study of consciousness. It concentrates on direct experience. And this is really important because it's what people relate to. People do not relate to the dry, abstract, conceptual mentalizations that philosophers and theologians write about. As a clinical psychologist, I need things that people can grip onto and understand by experience. But phenomenology needs to be guided by theology and philosophy. Phenomenology actually is a branch of philosophy that really focuses on individual experience. We're also going to bring in the spiritual writers. We're going to bring in the saints, the ones that have lived a deep sense of love and have had that real Catholic sense of well-being. And we're going to bring in the best of psychology, including developmental psychology. So one useful classification, one useful way of understanding what love is was in the final chapter of theologian Bernard Brady's book, Christian Love, How Christians Through the Ages Have Understood Love. And in that chapter, he drew heavily from the work of phenomenologists Jules Toner and Margaret Farley. And he came up with five characteristics of love. And we're again talking about this deep underlying, this radical love, this love that informs other loves. The five characteristics are love is, aff- love is affective, or a synonym for that is emotional. Love is emotional. Love is affirming. Love is responsive. Love is unitive. 
and love is steadfast. Love is affective, affirming, responsive, unitive, and steadfast. So let's go over each of these and get a deeper understanding of what love is. So love is affective. And this is really important because the emotional components of love can often be neglected in philosophical or theological treatises on love. When philosophers or theologians discuss love, often there is an absence of dealing with emotion. But love actually is an emotion. It's a movement from your heart. It's a movement from your soul, a movement from the innermost depths of your being, from your core self. Love is prior to reason and it transcends reason. You might say that love is bigger than reason. And love is best captured, therefore, not in the dry academic language of the philosopher, but in the verses of the poet. Blaise Pascal said, quote, The heart has its reasons, of which reason knows nothing. End quote. Love is emotional. Love involves the heart. You cannot love like a Vulcan, like Spock, without emotion. Emotions are illogical, all that sort of thing, right? Love rejoices in the beloved. And the Protestant theologian R.H. Niebuhr writes in his 1977 book, The Purpose of the Church and Its Ministry, he says, quote, By love we mean at least these attitudes and actions, rejoicing in the presence of the beloved, gratitude, reverence, and loyalty toward him, end quote. Bernard Brady says that, quote, love is the directive and dominant center of emotions, end quote. And many emotions are associated with love. It's not just one single emotion. You have delight and bliss and happiness, a sense of fulfillment and warmth, But you can also have grief. For example, in John chapter 11, verses 32 to 36, Then Mary, when she came where Jesus was and saw him, fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother, that was Lazarus, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. It's not just all delight, bliss, happiness, and fuzzy warm feelings. It's also grief and sadness and anxiety. Dolly Parton has this saucy quote. She says, quote, love is something sent from heaven to worry the hell out of you, end quote. You know, obviously Dolly's there is worrying about her loved ones, right? And this distress, right? We see this again in the gospel when our lady, our mother Mary and St. Joseph were searching for the missing 12-year-old Jesus in Jerusalem, Luke 2, verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. In great distress. Love is going to cost us times of great distress, of experiencing great distress. Because if there is no emotion, 
There is no agape. There's no love. The heart must be moved for love to be anything like complete. We cannot love like a Vulcan without emotion. Now, I remember when I was but a wee therapist many, many years ago, two decades ago or longer, I really focused on love being an act of the will. I didn't have to like my clients. I didn't have to have warm feelings toward them. I just needed to love them with the purity of will. But if I didn't have warmth or affection toward my clients, if there wasn't a warm and inviting emotional response, the clients could certainly pick that up. They needed a love that was more than just benevolence, more than just me stealing my will to will what was good for them. Love is bigger than benevolence. Benevolence is an absolutely necessary component that I don't think Brady actually emphasizes quite enough, but it is not sufficient. Benevolence is not sufficient. Okay, so that is his first component. Love is affective. Now let's go on to the second component. Love is affirming. What does he mean by that? Well, love affirms the other person. Love says yes to the other person at the same time as love says yes to oneself. Bernard Brady on page 268 says, quote, Agape is the simple yet profound recognition of the worthiness of and the goodness in persons. End quote. Affirmation. Affirmation happens on two levels. One level is the basic human dignity of the person, the kind of human dignity that is shared by all persons. Affirmation on this first level really essentially means having an equal regard for everyone. All persons are ontologically good. All persons bear the image and likeness of God. This is where St. Thomas Aquinas can say, love the sinner and hate the sin. This is not about the personal merits or the individual characteristics of the person. Right? Philosopher Gene Outka, he describes this as equal regard for each and every person because of that worthiness, the goodness, the ontological goodness in each person, right? So that's the one level, the basic human dignity shared by all people. The second level of affirmation, though, is the uniqueness of the person, right? Now we're looking at the individual, and when we love that individual, we acknowledge and affirm the uniqueness of our beloved, her particular gifts, her beauty, her unique qualities and talents, your gifts, your beauty, your particular and unique qualities and traits and characteristics. Jules Toner has this great quote. He says, I love you because you are you. I love you because you are you. Do you see the deep respect, the reverence for the other person? 
the embracing of the individuality of the person. St. Augustine said in his Confessions, quote, O thou omnipotent good, thou carest for every one of us as if thou didst care for him only, and so for all as if they were but one. There's that individuality that God has given us and that God loves in each of us. So, Brady discusses the need to affirm the other at both levels, at both the basic dignity level and at the personal uniqueness level. Brady has this quote, page 268, We do not want to be loved merely because we are a person. No one wants to be generically loved. Nor do we want to be loved because of a particular characteristic or physical trait. What if my full head of dark hair is no longer full or dark? We want to be loved in our totality. That's why my clients, back when I was but a wee therapist, that's why my clients didn't respond to my cool efforts at benevolence without any emotional connection. I was not finding and taking in their good qualities. Sometimes I was not even looking for their uniqueness. I was not seeing them as complete persons. My attempts at benevolence from just this will-based perspective actually avoided who they were. Why? Because I was threatened by them. I wasn't sure that I could handle the intensity of their pain, their shame, their grief, their rage. I kept them at arm's length. God loves us each as an individual. God loves you as an individual. God loves you in your unique particularity. God calls each of us by name. Isaiah 43 verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And Brady makes this point. Who does Jesus connect with? He connects with anyone who will connect with him. Paupers and nobles, lepers and rich men, Samaritan women and Roman centurions, fishermen and lawyers, tax collectors and Pharisees, the sick and the strong, the dying and the robust, the political zealots and the housewives, the prostitutes and the Sanhedrin, anyone that is open to relationship with him. Jules Toner says, you are why I love you. Loving someone in depth means loving from the lover's most personal self with sincerity, intensity, with endurance. To affectively affirm this unique person in a response informed by a full and detailed knowledge which catches the delicate shadings of his profoundest attitudes, moods, likes and dislikes, ideals, hopes, fears, capabilities, etc. Affirmation implies that we know the other person. It can't be cheap praise. It's got to be grounded in an authentic understanding. 
It's got to be based off of seeing, hearing, knowing, and understanding the other person. Affirmation implies acceptance of the other person. That doesn't mean it's an endorsement of the other's vices, their bad habits. But affirmation implies this acceptance, a recognition of who the other actually is. And not only a recognition of who the other actually is, but an acceptance of who that person is as an entire being. We're not just picking and choosing the attractive bits. We're not just keeping this and this, but discarding this and this about the other person. Leo Tolstoy said, quote, When you love someone, you love the person as they are, not as you'd like them to be. End quote. And this second element of love, according to Brady, affirmation, is the basis of affirmation therapy by Conrad Bars. And this is a quote from the Bars Institute. A person's ability to love is unlocked when that person experiences himself as good, worthwhile, and lovable. According to Christian psychiatrists Conrad Bars and Anna Terui, this process is called affirmation. Affirmation is a three-step process which occurs when one person is the source of unconditional love and emotional strengthening for another person. These three steps are the person is open and receptive to the goodness and lovableness of the other. Over time, the person allows himself to be moved with affection, love, delight, etc. by the other person. And third, the person reveals these feelings to the other primarily through his countenance, tone of voice, gentle touch, etc. So here we have a therapy grounded in a Thomistic anthropology, affirmation therapy by Conrad Bars and Anna Turui, that focuses on affirmation, that second characteristic. So we've covered the first characteristic, which is love is affective or emotional. Second characteristic, love is affirming. The third characteristic is love is responsive. Love is an active response for the well-being of the other. This is where Brady would include benevolence, right? It's about in participating in promoting the highest good for the other person, really seeking the other's full humanity. The question is, how can I help you to flourish? How can I help you move toward your highest good? It's action-oriented. It reflects 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in deed and truth. This responsiveness demands action. And this is where self-sacrifice can also come in. There are times when love is going to call for self-sacrifice. It doesn't necessarily mean that one is allowing oneself to be exploited or used or destroyed or mistreated. That's not what we're talking about. But self-sacrifice comes in in the responsiveness to the other. Brady says that, quote, a dominant feature of agape is a readiness and a willingness to subordinate the fulfillment of my needs so as to be able to help the other fulfill her needs, end quote. And that subordination may at times call for the ultimate sacrifice of martyrdom. But most of the time, according to St. Teresa of Lisieux, doctor of the church, quote, 
Little things done out of love are those that charm the heart of Christ. On the contrary, the most brilliant deeds, when done without love, are but nothingness. End quote. Loving God or my neighbor can never demand that I violate my integrity. It can never demand that I violate my deepest values. It can never demand that I violate the core of who I am. To paraphrase Margaret Farley, I can sacrifice what I have, but I can never sacrifice who I am. Here is where a lot of philosophical and theological discussions miss an important point in responsiveness. And that is that responsiveness implies an attunement to the other, a resonance, an understanding. You need the capacity to respond well. It's not just any kind of responsiveness. It's the ability to be aware of and to respond effectively to the needs of my, of my neighbors. There's a capacity aspect. There's an ability about this. It's not just an act of the will. Attunement can be described as a kind of resonance. Toner, for example, says that, quote, radical love is experienced as being in accord with the loved one vibrating, as it were, in harmony with the Beloved's active being, and so with the whole melody of the Beloved's life. It is a welcoming of the loved one into the lover's self in his life world, as fitting there, making in harmony with the lover's being and life. End quote. And what does St. Augustine say? He says, quote, what does love look like? It has the hands to help others. It has the feet to hasten to the poor and needy. It has eyes to see misery and want. It has ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of men. That is what love looks like. End quote. So what do we have? We have love as affective. We have love as affirming. We have love as responsive. Next up is love as unitive. So Bernard Brady, he says that the fruit of love is unity. Love unites. It is in the very nature of love to bring together. And this is so emphasized, so emphasized in the scripture, the need for unity. In John 17, verses 20 to 23, our Lord says, quote, I do not pray for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may become perfectly one. The fruit of love is unity. Love unites. And you hear this plea repeated by St. Paul in Colossians 3, verses 12 to 14. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, lowliness, meekness, and patience. 
forbearing one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And we know, we know from Acts that in the early church communities, there was this unity born of love. Acts 4 verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. When you love, you step out of yourself and you experience the other, says Bernard Brady. There's still a separateness. There's no blending or fusion or loss of identity here, but you are no longer just within yourself. You have entered into the space of another and you've allowed the other to enter into your space. Samuel Lover has this great quote, come live in my heart and pay no rent. When you love an enemy, you recognize that there's a similarity on this fundamental human level, this level of dignity. There's no dehumanization of the other when you love him, even when he's an enemy. So loving doesn't have to imply a mutuality or a reciprocity. Not all love that's given is accepted or taken in. You know, witness John 6, the discourse of the bread of life, when Jesus was offering the greatest gift ever, the entirety of himself, body, blood, soul, and divinity to his disciples, the response in John chapter 6, verses 60 and 66. Many of his disciples, when they heard it, said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And after this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. But with agape, we still reach out to the beauty and the inner goodness of the other. Agape pulls for unity, even with strangers. Right now, devastating wars are actively going on in the Ukraine, in Afghanistan, in Ethiopia, in South Sudan, in Syria, in Yemen, other places too. Food crises are becoming more urgent. International food trade and distribution channels are breaking down. This will move hearts that are aflame with agape, right? Jesus wept over Jerusalem in Luke 19, verses 41 to 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that even today you knew the things that make for peace, but now they are hid from your eyes. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will cast up a bank about you and surround you and hem you in on every side and dash you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Love is unitive. It binds us together. That's the fourth of the five characteristics of love, according to Bernard Brady. Love is affective. Love is affirming. Love is responsive. Love is unitive. 
And the last one is that love is steadfast. God's love endures. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. O give thanks to the God of God, for his steadfast love endures forever. O give thanks to the Lord of Lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. And it goes on and on with every other line being, for his steadfast love endures forever. God's love endures forever. It may not always be received. It may not always be received, but it's given to us in a steadfast way. Now, for us human beings, love can change. It can deepen. It can mature. H.R. Niebuhr, the Protestant theologian, says that love can have a history. Love in this fallen human world may not always be mutual or reciprocal. Right? We have the story of the prodigal son, the father loving the son with a steadfast love. But the son's response was anything but steadfast. We have the story of St. Monica and St. Augustine. And then we have the story of St. Augustine and God, right? With the famous quote from Augustine in Confessions, Late have I loved you, beauty so old and so new. Late have I loved you. And see, you were within and I was in the external world and sought you there. And in my unlovely state, I plunged into those lovely and created things which you made. You were with me and I was not with you. The lovely things kept me far from you, though if they did not have their existence in you, they had no existence at all. You called and cried out loud and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent. You put to flight my blindness. You were fragments, and I drew in my breath, and now pant after you. I tasted you, and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. Late have I loved you, beauty so old and so new. Late have I loved you. That's the poetry of a lover of God. Love is steadfast. Martin Luther King, his essay on loving your enemies, has this quote. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as cooperation with good. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. 
you can hear the desire for the steadfast love, even in the modern era. Some of us are old enough to remember the 1983 song by Cyndi Lauper, right? Time after time. But the lyrics in the chorus read, If you fall, I will catch you. I will be waiting. Time after time. Right? There's a part of us that longs for that steadfastness. There's a part of us that longs for that steadfast love. So those are the five characteristics, according to Bernard Brady, right? Those are the five characteristics. Love is affective, love is affirming, love is responsive, love is unitive, and love is steadfast. We also have love as not just the giving of self, but giving self. Giving of myself really means sharing something of what I am. I might share my wit or my knowledge or my strength or my sense of joy, my playfulness. These are qualities of my being. They're things I possess, but they're not giving myself. Giving myself goes back to what Jules Toner refers to as that radical love. It's the gift of myself, the gift of me. I am the gift. I'm not just giving my qualities or my talents or my possessions. I am loving from the core of my being, making gift of myself. That loving is the most personal act. So where do we go wrong? Well, we go wrong when we love the wrong things. St. Augustine in his confession says, in order to discover the character of people, we only have to observe what they love. Goethe says, quote, we are shaped and fashioned by those we love, end quote. And there's an old Creole proverb that says, quote, tell me who you love and I'll tell you who you are, end quote. We're going to speak a lot more about those distortions in the next few episodes of this podcast. I want to discuss the death of love. Right. This is from Brady, a quote from Bernard Brady, page 273. Love does not die because of hate, but because of apathy. The death of love is often preceded by the denial of the basic dignity of the other. The death of love happens when we reject instead of affirm the other's special, personal, and unique goodness. The death of love is encouraged when we ignore the other's needs and wants while prioritizing our own wants. The death of love occurs when we pursue discord, division, disassociation, and distance in the place of unity, end quote. I would say it's not just the pursuit of discord, division, disassociation, and distance. If whatever we are pursuing, even if it's a, a lesser good, if it results in ignoring a rejection of the other needs, it's going to result in discord, division, disassociation, and distance, even if we're not pursuing those things. You know, I might want to become physically fit and start training two hours a day for a marathon. But if I did that, if I just sort of somehow work that into my schedule, it would mean that I would wind up neglecting my family's needs. Something really important here is that malice is not necessary for love to die. Apathy doesn't have a lot of malice in it by definition. Hatred has a lot more malice than apathy. So if you're actively hating someone, you are still in relationship with the hated one. 
you are thinking about the hated one. The hated one still exists for you. But in apathy, the other does not register in your consciousness. The hated one, he or she just doesn't matter to you. And that's why neglect has been shown to be more harmful than abuse. And in abuse, there's still a relationship as twisted as that is. And this is no justification of abuse. But neglect, when you're not seen, heard, known, understood, when you don't register in the consciousness of the other person, that's worse. You look at the outcomes, neglect is often resulting in far more symptoms than abuse. All right, well, where are we going? I want to talk just a little bit about where we're going. In the next episode, we're going to talk about tolerating being loved. Many people assume that we just want to be loved. In fact, Bernard Brady, in his preface on page Roman numeral seven, his second sentence of the book says, quote, loving seems entirely natural and being loved seems wonderfully good, end quote. Uh, no. No, I take issue with that. Being loved can be very, very painful for people. It can be very unnatural for many people, especially those with complex trauma. That kind of sentence, that loving seems entirely natural and being loved seems wonderfully good, that would have never been written by a depth psychologist or anyone who's experienced the terror, the shame, the grief, and the walls that those who have gone through abandonment and betrayal traumas suffer with. You wouldn't say something that naive. There's also an assumption that we naturally love ourselves. That's not true either. It takes real work to get to an ordered self-love. And so in another podcast episode coming up, we're going to talk about ordered self-love. We're also going to talk about love and identity. From the first letter of John chapter 3 verse 1, Quote, see what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the, why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Right? We're focusing on that, our identity as children of God. We're also going to discuss learning to love by loving. Right? St. Bernard of Clairvaux, we must remember that love reveals itself not by words and phrases, but by actions and experience. It is love which speaks here. And if anyone wishes to understand it, let him first love. You learn to love by loving. And then we're also going to talk and spend a lot of time on what gets in the way of loving. We're going to talk about sin, which is the great unlove, right? And sin, especially as missing the mark. We're going to talk about trauma. We're going to go back to how trauma impacts us in the natural realm and what is its impact on our capacity to be loved and to love God, others, and self in an ordered way. We're going to talk about original sin, which I also think of as the original trauma. We're going to talk about shame and the differences between unlove and desolation. Well, I want to invite you on an adventure with me. I want you to come on an adventure of being loved 
and loving. That's what the Resilient Catholics community is all about. I want you to check out the Resilient Catholics community at soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. Or you can just Google Resilient Catholics community. The RCC is all about working through your human formation issues. These are the issues that inhibit you from receiving the love that you need and from loving God completely with every fiber of your being, with every part of you, with all of your emotions, with all your thoughts, with your whole body, with all your inner experience, with all of you, no part left behind, no part of you left out. It's all about learning to be gentle but firm with ourselves. It's all about integration. It's all about resilience. And it's about restoration. It's about recovering from being dominated by fear, anger, sadness, pessimism, shame, whatever your struggle is in the depths of your human formation. We do this work experientially, lots of experiential exercises. The work in the RCC is informed by internal family systems and by the best of the rest of psychological and human formation resources, all grounded in a Catholic understanding of the human person, all focused on helping you to better accept love and to love more fully, to carry out those two great commandments of our Lord. So I want to know, are you up for the challenge? Would you like to join me? Would you like to join the rest of our pioneers in this adventure? Can you be part of the community? Are you ready to prevail over what hinders your human formation? Would you like to get over being dominated by fear, anger, shame, sadness, pessimism, whatever it is? If so, join me. Join all of us in the Resilient Catholics community. Soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. We're taking applications throughout June of 2022 for our third cohort. We only take at, we only take applications in June and December. Those in the June cohort, the ones that are coming in now, will start their adventure in June and July by taking our initial measures kits. There's a lot of information on our website, soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. You'll be able to connect with me to go through the results of the initial measures kits in a 15-minute online interview. And also, if you join, you'll have the opportunity to go on our first in-person Resilient Catholics Community Retreat. It's going to be in Bloomington, Indiana at the Mother of the Redeemer Retreat Center from August 12th to the 14th, 2022. Details will be put up soon on our website. You'll get a chance to spend that weekend with me in person in Bloomington, Indiana, August 12th. It's only for RCC members, but if you apply, if you go through that application process, and we get you into the RCC, you are invited to launch your experience in the RCC with that in-person retreat, Bloomington, Indiana, Mother of the Redeemer Retreat Center, August 12th to the 14th, 2022. Remember, you are a listener to this podcast, and in that sense, you are with me, and I am also with you. You can call me on my cell phone any Tuesday or Thursday from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time for my regular conversation hours. I've set that time aside for you, 317-567-9594. Give me a call, 317-567-9594. We can talk about anything that comes up on the podcast, right? So with that, we'll invoke our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us, St. John the Baptist, pray for us. 